0: My body would just start to shut down, and eventually get to the point where I would die. I'm not scared of dying; it's more what I'm going to miss out on. How much I've got to go? Two, four, two. Have
1: you responded to We a lady unconscious. one three two zero. Hi, I'm Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and this is a podcast series about mateship, about life in the bush, and about the role. The Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast.
0: I really struggle with myself going to have a shower just to get undressed and see the tube hanging out of my stomach. That just really makes you
1: think about life. Good health is something to be celebrated. You don't know how lucky you are to enjoy good health until you no longer have it. When you live in rural and remote parts of this large country, the tyranny of distance can make the diagnosis and the treatment of health conditions even harder. And when your condition can be life-threatening, it can be very scary to both manage and navigate a personal health journey. In this podcast, we're going to talk to an amazing woman, Dani Horton, who lives in the beautiful but remote Eight Mile Creek on the South Australian coastline near Mount Gambier. G'day, Danny. Hi. How are you? I'm really good. Now, 8 Mile Creek is midway between Adelaide and Melbourne. It's about a five-hour drive to each location. Could you tell me what 8 Mile Creek looks like?
0: 8 Mile Creek is a beautiful area. We're very close to the beach and we're surrounded by agricultural land. We've got pine trees everywhere. We've got caves. We've got wonderful seafood down here. It's just a really wonderful
1: spot to be in. Danny. when you were 21, you'd been unwell for a number of weeks. Can you explain what you'd been feeling?
0: I'd sort of had a cold that I just couldn't shake. It had been going on and off and, you know, just feeling really tired and lethargic and, you know, being in the country, you just, ah, it'll be right, I'll manage, she'll be fine. And uh, got up the next morning and passed out. Wow. I don't usually do that. I don't usually faint or anything and it was just a bit of
1: a shock. Yeah. What did you do?
0: Well, I ended up ringing my dad because I um, thought I'd drive myself up to the Mount, which is 30 minutes away, and I worked out I couldn't see properly. It was um, like cloudy, like something had just sort of gone over my eyes and I couldn't really see. I didn't know what was going on. Oh, that's scary. So I rang dad and said, oh, I think I need to go see a doctor And then being a uh, region down here, our doctors are always very busy and they weren't actually going to see me that day. And then I explained what had happened and they're like, no, no, you better come straight up. So Dad came down and picked me up and brought me up. Well, we went into the doctor's clinic and we sat down and the doctor took my blood pressure and, hmm, was the answer I got. I'm like, okay, not taking much notice. And he goes, here, can you go wee in this cup for me? Yeah. Okay. So I went and I tried and worked out I couldn't even cover the bottom of the cup. I couldn't do a wee. I felt like I had to, but I just couldn't get anything out. So I went back into the room and the doctor basically said, you've got half an hour to pack some stuff. You need to go to the hospital. I've made an appointment for you out at emergency and you need to be there. So being 30 minutes away from anywhere, we didn't kind of pack anything. So we went round and saw my mum, who was at work, and said, I've uh, got to go to the hospital. We're not sure what's going on, but it doesn't sound good.
1: And what happened once you got to emergency?
0: So they put me straight in and told me that my blood pressure was quite high. So we're talking something over 200 on about 180. So stroke level, we're talking. Um, So they tried everything to try and get my blood pressure down. And then I started uh, going in and out of consciousness. Then I started with very bad gastro. I kind of was going both ends at once. So I was quite a treat.
1: (laughs) Holy moly, that must have been really scary. Did they say what they suspected was going on at the time or were they just trying to figure it out themselves?
0: They were trying to figure it out themselves. They weren't quite sure what was wrong. We were just lucky that there was a doctor there, Dr Pugsley, who was a uh, specialist that was down and he took one look at me, took a look at my results because I had heaps of blood tests and stuff and just said, nah, you can't do anything here. She's got to go up to Adelaide. Did he say why? Uh, Not at that stage. Uh, We didn't really know what was going on. We didn't realise he was a renal specialist, but yeah, they'd called him in to have a look at me and that was his first decision. And so they made a decision to get me sent straight to the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Adelaide.
1: And how were they going to do that? Because you were five hours drive away and there you are, there's obviously, they've got a kidney specialist there. How are they going to get you there?
0: So they acquired the services of the Royal Flying Doctors because I wouldn't have made the journey going by ambulance, by road. Yeah, they had to get me there the quickest that they could. Do you remember any of that flight? I remember thinking it was about a 10-minute flight. (laughs) Uh, I didn't realise I was going in and out of consciousness and every time I woke up it was because they were checking my blood pressure. What I do remember, uh, the nurses were just amazing, like trying to keep me calm and trying to keep my mother calm. The only thing I must admit that I do remember is that my dad and my brother packed my bag for Adelaide. Now, we're talking December, so it's hot. So they thought they did a wonderful, wonderful job and they packed me my white softball slider shorts, which are the shorts you wear under your shorts that have padding on them so that when you slide into bases, you don't hurt yourself. (laughs) And at the time, they were male ones, so they had an opening for a box to be put in so they were my shorts for summer that they packed for me. And they also packed me an electric blue G string, which is really appropriate when you're in a hospital gown and the butts hanging out. So yeah, I've never asked them to pack me a
1: bag ever since. So wise, wise move, Danny. Very wise move. But maybe maybe your dad and brother have a sense of humour. I think so, but
0: I think they were just in a mad panic and just grabbed whatever they saw and hoped that it would be okay. Let's just say mum did a lot of shopping while we were in Adelaide.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you, you arrive in Adelaide and it was there that they gave you an actual formal diagnosis. What was that?
0: The first diagnosis I got was an extreme case of food poisoning. So they treated me with plasmapheresis for 10 rounds where they take your blood out of your body, separate it in like a washing machine type machine and get rid of your white blood cells And then put new white blood cells in, mix it back together with your blood and put it back through. So they basically clean your blood. Um, So that was one lot of treatment I had. And then they also put me on dialysis because my kidneys weren't functioning. Um, My creatinine was over 950. So a normal person should be around 90 to 100 or something. I'm not sure. I haven't been normal for a long time, so I'm not sure what the normal level is. I mean, at the moment I'm sitting at about 400. But, uh, yeah, I was 950 then. Wow. And that would explain a lot of the vomiting and diarrhoea because that's one of the side effects of kidney failure. Yeah. And the more he did with testing and that, he came across – the fact that I had scleroderma renal crisis. So the scleroderma had affected my kidneys and he was able to diagnose that through blood tests. I also ended up with some pink spots that popped up on my face and because I also had Raynaud's as well. So all that combined was what gave him the uh, diagnosis.
1: So could you explain scleroedema because it was a, uh, a condition that I was unfamiliar with until I got to meet you?
0: Yeah, it's not one that happens very often. It's an autoimmune disease um, and basically it's tightening of the skin. I've met two other ladies in Mount Gambier that have it And not one of us is the same. We've all got different things that each other's got. Like there's one lady that's got the spots like I've got and it affected her lungs. And then there's another one that's got tightening of the fingers, skin, and her hands are like um, claws Uh, It's what sort of happens. But it's a disease that there's no cure for. And it's just something that you've got to try and manage and cold weather is not good <laughs> and I live in a very cold area. So <laughs> but just wearing gloves and keeping warm and that sort of thing helps. But, yeah, it's just a lifelong condition that I've just got to manage and, yeah, hope that it just stays stable.
1: When you got that initial diagnosis of scleroderma, how were you feeling
0: It was extremely scary. Um, I think the fact that we had no idea, I'd never been sick. We didn't really know anyone that had been sick. So just being the first people to have to go through something like this and experience it all as, you know, as the first thing that we've ever experienced, none of us had ever been in hospital. So, you know, we didn't know what to expect. Um, Yeah, it was quite daunting. And yeah, just the fear of the unknown was probably the worst part of it all. And just hoping that we were going
1: to get through to the other side. So what does it mean for you personally to have that diagnosis? What does it mean for you physically? I know it's particularly impacted your kidneys. Has it impacted you in other ways physically as well?
0: I have a lot of joint and muscle pain, but um, that could also be related to the kidney issues. I probably feel a little bit self-conscious every now and then of the spots on my face, but really I haven't let it stop me from doing anything. I look at it as I'm quite lucky that it affected my kidneys in the fact that I can do dialysis and, you know, that prolongs my life. Whereas if it had affected my lungs or my heart or something, you know, I'd probably be waiting for a transplant or I probably wouldn't be here. So, right. yeah, I consider myself very lucky with what
1: ended up happening with me. So, if you didn't manage your health condition, what would happen?
0: So, if I didn't manage my health condition, um, basically my body would fill up with lots of toxins. Um, and it'd get to a point where um, my body would just start to shut down. The organs would all start to impact and eventually get to the point where I would die. So it's very, very important that I manage things such as blood pressure and diet and fluid intake and just, you know, make sure that I'm in good health overall.
1: Did you worry that, you know, and this is probably a, a, a harsh question to ask, but, you know, as a young 21-year-old at the time, to suddenly be diagnosed with a condition that has the potential of shortening your life considerably, did that really impact you personally and emotionally?
0: It did. When I first got sick, it was, oh, my God, what what's happening? Why me? But while I was in hospital getting treatment and that I met a little boy, he would have been about eight or nine, and he was having cancer treatment. So, you know, it really turned my whole thinking around. Woe well, was me, went to, okay, I know that I can probably get better. Um, I can follow the treatments and, you know, everything should be okay. I'll be able to continue on. But I didn't know whether this little boy was able to um, get better being on chemo, you didn't know whether he was going to be there for the next one or whether he was going to survive or, you know, I still to this day don't know whether he ended up recovering from cancer. So I guess I'm pretty lucky in that respect.
1: Yeah. When you do have a bad day, is it thoughts that are the problem or is there actual physical duress and issues that you have to struggle with? Like, does your body get really tired after you do dialysis or, or anything like that? Or is it just the mental struggles that we go through?
0: Uh, it's sort of a bit of both. Um, my mental struggle mainly is um, actually seeing the tube coming out of my stomach. So I really struggle with myself going to have a shower um, just to get undressed and see the tube hanging out of my stomach. That just really freaks me out. Even though I've had it for quite a long time now, I still can't deal with looking at it. So my husband usually puts the dressing on.
1: What is it about it that you have trouble with?
0: I think because it makes it all real. I know that sounds really silly because it is all real, but it's just that fact of seeing it and it's that daily reminder that I am sick, whereas I try to just ignore it and, you know, dialysis is just part of my day, it's just part of the routine. Even though it's four times a day, it's still just part of the day. But, yeah, actually getting up and seeing that tube, that just, yeah, really makes you think about life, really, how long, how much I've got to go, you know. My biggest thing is I'm not scared of dying. It's more what I'm going to miss out on, you know. Like I want to make sure I'm here for Lucy's wedding and, yeah, it's it's a big mental struggle and physically I'm always tired but most parents are. <laughs> I think that's just a given. But, yeah, I do have days where I do struggle and I just have to lay down and, you know, I don't get to play with Lucy as much as I really wish I could. So, it's just one of
1: those things. How long did you have to stay in Adelaide for before they let you come home?
0: Because back then, uh, Mount Gambier didn't have a dialysis unit. So, we had to choose then and there what dialysis I'd do. So, I chose peritoneal dialysis, and that was a very good choice for me because we were able to come home after a month's trading. So, we're in Adelaide, we got flown up on the 16th of December, and then we were able to come home by the end of February, I think it was, by the time we had training and done all the other treatments of the other issues. And luckily for me, after six months of dialysis at home, my kidneys decided to switch back on.
1: As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-MAX Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor service. These simulators are full-size planes, minus the wings, and the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state, and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. So a short while later you became pregnant. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> and what did your specialist say about having had a kidney failure previously and about your condition with scleroderma? What was the um, the advice that you got from your specialist about your pregnancy?
0: His advice was that, um, like, preferably he would have waited, for, like, preferred me to wait till I'd had a transplant and then look at having a baby. But as I said to him, I was young, I was probably able to recover a lot better and my levels had been really stable. My creatinine was about 170, 180. So that's pretty good for someone with kidney failure. So he said, all right, well, we'll do this, but we need to go and speak to this specialist. So I was to meet Shilpa Chesudason. And uh, before we met her, I ended up pregnant because as soon as I heard that systems were all go. It kind of was all go. So,
1: <laughs> and what did they say? What were the risks connected with you and the pregnancy and the baby, considering your health condition?
0: So, having a baby with kidney failure, you get told that you're probably going to have the baby early. If you are lucky enough to carry the baby to term, um, or even to a viable stage, and basically they just warned us that you know, we don't know how good an outcome you'll have. Yeah. So it was just all a bit of potluck and risk that I was willing to take, but it was definitely worth the outcome.
1: (laughs) So, okay. So you're having this pregnancy and you're, I guess, um, not quite knowing what's going to happen and how. You needed to head to hospital early Um, I think 28 weeks or something, is that right?
0: That was the game plan that, um, yeah, we'd head up to Adelaide at 28 weeks and then probably have the baby at 32. And then we got to 21 weeks and the obstetrician down here said, I can't help you anymore, your blood pressure's going up through the roof, we're going to have to send you to Adelaide. So I got taken straight to the Mount Gambier Hospital And I packed my bag this time.
1: (laughs) I didn't let anyone else pack it. No G-string for a pregnant lady at 21 weeks pregnant? (laughs) No, no, no G-string for a pregnant lady. What happened once you arrived in Adelaide? What did they decide once they got you specialist care? So
0: I met Shilpa at the Women's and Children's Hospital when I arrived and it was trying to get the blood pressure down because um, keeping the blood pressure down helps the kidneys Because especially when you're pregnant, your kidneys go into overdrive because it's like pumping through and cleaning more blood because you're cleaning your blood as well as the baby's and everything else. So it was really trying to get that blood pressure down so that we could manage um, to try and keep the baby in for a while. So at 23 weeks, I met with the renal dialysis team because my kidneys were really starting to play up. And at 23 weeks, uh, a fetus isn't viable. So we were trying to do everything we could to keep the baby in. So the night before my birthday, they put me over to the Royal Adelaide Hospital and put a um, permacath into my chest so that we could start dialysis on my birthday, which I wasn't very impressed with. <laughs> and we started dialysis at the Women's and Children's um, on the 18th of September and it was to buy us 2 weeks wow to try and keep the baby in for 2 weeks
1: all right so tell me when did you when did it actually end up happening that okay this baby's coming like did your body just just say no, nah, that's it or did the specialists you know draw a line in the sand and say okay this is now endangering baby and mother like where where did how did they juggle that that decision like trying to save a baby and a mother. Yeah. So
0: it all came down to the ultrasound in the end. Um, I was having them every day in that two weeks um, because they'd put me on dialysis just to try and clear the toxins and stuff out of my body. And uh, on the Sunday, the ultrasound guy come in and he goes, come on, off we go. So off we went. We started doing the ultrasound and I looked at him and I said, it's it, isn't it? And he goes, yep. So we ended up going in at 2 o'clock on the Sunday to go and have
1: her. So. so they basically called it, they said, okay, you, this is not healthy anymore and there's a chance we could lose her. Yeah. Was the condition such that if they let it go on, it actually endangered your life as well? Or was it just the baby?
0: It was both because um, the dialysis was working to a point, but yeah, it was starting to get dangerous for both of us because they gave me a break from dialysis and I ended up feeling a bit rough. I didn't feel quite right. A bit of chest pain. And I put up with it for a few hours. And uh, it was about two o'clock in the morning. I'm like, nah, something's not quite right. And I ended up having fluid all around the heart. They ended up giving me some nifedipine to uh, get rid of that fluid super duper quick. Because yeah, I I could have died. (laughs) But you know, I didn't want to be a bother to anyone. So, yeah, and then they gave me that Sunday off of dialysis again and it was just, yeah, now nah, the toxins and everything. It was safer for her to be out than in, whereas the weeks before it was safer for her to be in than out. So now we're at that cutthroat point where it's like, no, nah, we have to get her out and then you have to decide whether we work on her.
1: Wow. And it's like, uh, okay. So she's she's <laughs> um, 23 weeks, like, right? 23 weeks? She was
0: 25 weeks at this stage. 25 weeks. So we'd got to 25 weeks and six days. Wow. And, yeah, that was when they pulled the pin and said, nah, we've got to get her
1: out now. It's too dangerous. So, yeah.
0: yeah. So she arrived? She did. So we...
1: what What were you, like, they said that it was up to you to decide. So what happened? Well, because she was still so little,
0: they gave us... They, they just sort of warned us that, like, she may come out not breathing. So whether they work on her was our decision. Um, but I just said, well, you guys have seen so many babies and you, you would know whether she was going to survive or not. And they said, well, we'll do our best. Two minutes after she'd been pulled out, we heard this little lamb bleating over in the corner and it was her. But, yeah, she was 610 oh, wow. grams or one pound, five and a half ounces. Wow. And uh, as long as a Coke bottle, say, so as long as a 600ml bottle, 31 centimetres, she was tiny.
1: How was that two-minute period? Do you remember much of it well, before you actually, you know, knew if she was alive or not?
0: They announced that she was out and we saw Lucy go past. And, you know, Brent and I just kept looking at one another wondering whether she was alive or not because at that stage we didn't know. Um, But all the nurses and that were very reassuring and they were all doing their jobs. I had the team looking after me. There was a team looking after Lucy and sort of it was just all a bit of a blur and it was just probably the longest two minutes we'd ever had, you know, just waiting for some sort of notification that she was alive um, and then, yeah, all of a sudden there was this little bleat in the corner and all of a sudden we knew that she was okay, she was breathing. I mean, it was extremely stressful because of such a high-risk um, birth that we had. Yeah, I was very, very sick. Um, my hemoglobin had dropped quite a lot. Yeah, it was sort of a bit cautious about my own health condition there for a while. Brett kept popping in and out to let me know how she was going and that while they worked on her and they worked on me. So, yeah, it was um, pretty full on there for a while and it wasn't until 10 days later I finally got to have a first hold. And even then, you know, she was this fragile little thing. Even when we went to just pick her up to do like a nappy change, you were freaking out the whole time because you thought you were going to break this tiny, fragile little doll that was see-through and... Yeah, it was pretty full on.
1: How long did it take before they actually let her out of the hospital?
0: She had a few ups and downs. Um, She had a small bleed on the brain and she got off the ventilator and then had to get put back on. So that was a big step back um, just to give her body a rest. Um, They kept her there from the 3rd of October through to New Year's Day. She was 2.4 kilos and she was able to get Back home to Mount Gambia, where she ended up staying in the Mount Gambia Hospital for 20 more days. But we got to have another flight on the Royal Flying Doctors. And I was just a passenger this time, I wasn't actually a patient. So it was nice for a change. And we got taken out to the Royal Flying Doctor base out at Adelaide Airport. So it was lovely actually having a look and seeing how it all works and stuff. And Lucy was given a beautiful little hand-knitted airplane that we've still got and we still treasure quite a lot. And, yeah, they packed her up in a little capsule, I suppose you'd call it, and there was a tiny little baby in this capsule. (laughs) And, yeah, they strapped her onto a bed and... Flew her home because she still had to be on oxygen. So there was no way of us getting her home. So she had to get flown home in a humidity crib with the oxygen on. Wow. I mean, it was 10 days before I was allowed to hold her the first time. So, yeah. yeah. My little package.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, your little package is 11 years old now. Is that right?
0: Almost. Yep. 11 in a couple of months.
1: Yeah. Um, So she's she's 10. and. And how is she? How was her health and how is she, you know, how she traveled? She started off with so small. How is she these days?
0: We had a few issues when she was younger. Um, we'd had to call the ambulance a few times where she was blue and wasn't breathing and um, she had bronchiolitis. Uh, we were even at a wedding in Melbourne and I noticed that she was breathing funny and we ended up in the hospital in Melbourne for three nights. And then we come home, and then we ended up back in hospital about four days later with her and just basically needing oxygen and that sort of thing. Because with the ventilator and her being so Prem, there was a little bit of damage caused to her lungs. Um, So the damage is still there, but now that her lungs are bigger, it's as if it's smaller. So she'll never ever be an elite athlete. And she's not a very sporty person. She hates sport, but she loves dancing. So she's forever dancing and singing and acting. And uh, But um, we're very, very lucky. Um, she's had no mental deficits because we were warned that, you know, they don't know how extreme prems will come out because of all the oxygen and the brain bleeds and all that sort of stuff. Um, they
1: can't guarantee you that you'll have a healthy baby. But we are so, so lucky. That's wonderful. And then in the last 10 years, how is your health? Has it sort of evened out? Are you still, you know, fainting and waking up and not being able to see or are you travelling okay?
0: My kidneys have been lasting fairly well. They've just gradually got worse and worse and worse. Um, In December 2019, we had to pull the pin and say, all right, let's start dialysis again. So I went up to Adelaide. I drove this time. I was able to drive. I wasn't in an emergency this time, so that was nice. Um, and I got the Tenkoth catheter put in and we started dialysis on the 2nd of January in 2020. And I'm still currently doing it now. So we're back doing peritoneal dialysis four times a day,
1: seven days a week, just fitting it all
0: in with life, basically, <laughs> hoping
1: to one day get a call. <laughs> And so you're waiting for a kidney transplant? Yes,
0: yes, I certainly am. I've had one call and I had to decline it. Sadly, the gentleman that died, he was 70, and to try and get that kidney to last 50-odd years is just too much pressure to put on a kidney. So I declined it and it was going to go to a lady who was about 68, so that was a much better match for age-wise. But unfortunately, when they cut the gentleman open, he was full of cancer. So they weren't able to actually use his organs, which ended up being quite a sad thing for everyone involved. So,
1: yeah. So the the how do people, if somebody wants to be an organ donor, either while they're alive, uh, whereas some cases you can actually donate a kidney um, as a live donation or, you know, when they pass, how do they do that? How does a person, how do they make that known?
0: For a live donor, it's something that you can talk to a GP or somebody about. You can register to go on a donor list because they do different donations uh, with different people. So say Brett decided he wanted to donate his kidney, and we weren't a match, but someone in Queensland or Victoria or somewhere else, their partner wanted to donate and they didn't match, but they matched with me, then we could swap the kidneys. So it's a kidney exchange program. So if anyone is wanting to do that, I'm sure that um, they're involved with a nephrologist because you wouldn't just randomly say, hey, here, here's my kidney, have this. But um, usually the people that want to get involved with that would be speaking with nephrologists because they've obviously got a partner or a friend or a family member or someone that they work with that they want to help. As for donating after life, you need to go to Donate Life and sign up with them because it's a national register. It used to be on your driver's license and you'd tick the box, but they've taken that off. It still is in South Australia and I think that's the only state in Australia that has it still on the driver's license. But You need to sign up with Donate Life. Basically, it takes a minute. You have your Medicare card, you sign up, sign the dotted line and, yeah, just let your family and friends know what you decide because they will have the last say regardless of whether you want to donate or not,
1: they'll have the last say. Right. I know that um, from time to time the RFDS actually transports either organs or uh, patients to organs to get them to where they need to go so let's say for example there was a heart transplant that was needed and there was a patient in brisbane and a heart in melbourne then sometimes we get called upon to transport either the patient or the heart and the same would go for your kidney so i hope that at some point you do get to fly with us again and that um, we're either taking <laughs> we're taking you to a tertiary hospital where a kidney awaits or we're bringing a kidney <laughs> to a tertiary hospital where you are um, that would be fabulous now let me just ask so you are now with your husband Brett you're currently building a beautiful new house at eight mile creek and you're staying with your mum and your dad while that house build is underway as many of us do. Um, Parents are wonderful, aren't they? Um, They are. (laughs) They're so tolerant. I know that your family, just as many in remote Australia, have had to call on the RFDS many times, but interestingly now there's three generations of your family that have had to call upon the RFDS. So we have you with um, your kidney failure and so forth, and then we have darling Lucy, your daughter, and now we have also your mum, Lynette. Would you mind telling me about that?
0: Yeah, no, mum decided she wanted more frequent flyer points with the RFDS than me. She's now had four flights, so she likes rubbing that in, that she's had four, one as a carer and three as a patient. Mum suffered a massive heart attack. She was home and we had nurses staying here. We were just very lucky, the family friends of mum and dad's, and they were, had a caravan parked at mum and dad's house, that's right. And mum just felt a bit off and pains in her arm and thought, oh, the Panadol's not going to fix this one, there's something really wrong. And uh, they rang the ambulance and woke the nurses up and they come and started treating mum. So I think they put like an aspirin or something under her tongue and, you know, that sort of thing. And then the ambulance took her up to Mount Gambia the flying doctors were called and I know that mum said that she just couldn't get over the fact that from when she first called the ambulance to when she got up to Adelaide and was fixed it was all within 12 hours so it would never have happened if she had to drive to Adelaide because it's five hours just in that. But yeah, the flying doctors, she said, oh, she can't thank them enough. She said, I can't fault them. They were amazing. They just kept her nice and calm because that was the biggest thing with her. She had to stay calm. Is your mum okay now? Yeah, no, she's okay. She's had another couple since. But uh, no, she's doing all right. Yeah,
1: we're all frequent flyers here.
0: It's probably not something you want to be, but.
1: You know, I have a, an ongoing joke where I say that we're Australia's third largest airline, but one that you just don't want to check in on. So. No. <laughs> um, yeah. I think your family's proven that.
0: But no, the service is phenomenal. <laughs>
1: They're amazing. (laughs) Yeah, look, thank you so much for talking to me, Danielle. And as I said, I do hope that we fly you again in the not-too-distant future when a kidney becomes available.
0: Oh, thank you. It was lovely chatting. (laughs) It was great. Thank you.
1: The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to The Flying Doctor podcast. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Izuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Izuzu Ute online.